Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and the title of tonight's message is Something isn't right. Something isn't right. Now, in chapter 3, the Lord called Samuel's name four times while he was lying down trying to sleep. And and the fourth time that God called his name, he responded to the Lord according to Eli's advice. And then the Lord proceeded to share with Samuel about the judgment he was going to bring against Eli and his descendants. And at the urging of Eli, after Samuel received that word or that message from the Lord, Samuel began to share that first message with Eli. And indeed, it was a hard message to share because it was about, again, judgment that was coming upon Eli and his house or his descendants. And so Samuel, the scriptures tell us, he began to grow in the nation of Israel from north to south. They began to recognize that, that God confirmed him to be a prophet of the Lord. The Lord confirmed him to be his mouthpiece, and people recognized that. And so in Samuel 4, verse 1, it picks up and says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and he encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle... Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies." Now, the Philistines are a Gentile people of Cretan origin. And they were immigrant people from the military aristocracy of the island of Crete. And they originally originally were a seagoing people. And they were from the Aegean area or region. Now, at this point of our study, they were occupying the southwest coast of Israel. That is the nation of Israel. And they were a rival nation of Israel. And another place that was mentioned in those first three verses is Ebenezer. Ebenezer was north of Jerusalem. And that's, of course, near to the place that Um, Israel was camping, that is the army of Israel were camping. But then there's another place that's mentioned, and it's Aphek. And Aphek is an ancient Canaanite city which lay within the territory of Ephraim in the plain of Sharon. And it says it was about three miles west of the Jewish city of Ebenezer. So, So the Philistines and the Israelites, they were camping Um, in close proximity to each other because it says that Israel was encamped beside Ebenezer. Now, these two nations began to fight against each other, and we see that the Philistines had actually gotten the better of Israel. It says that they killed about 4,000 men of the Israelites' army, and this prompted, of course, the Israelites to go back to camp, and they began to question what happened. And the Israelite army began to regroup. 
And many of us as well have gotten beat up perhaps in spiritual warfare. Now, if that has happened, to me, it's a good idea to go to the Lord for answers on what to do next. So maybe the enemy came against you when he put some type of temptation in your way and you fell for it. You fell for the trap. You lost that battle. Well, it's time to get up and dust yourself off and regroup. Ask the Lord what to do next. Lord, how can I move on? What strategies do you want me to use? What scriptures, what word do you have for me, Lord? So we see that the elders of Israel, they, they came up with the idea of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. And Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, it, it lay about 20 miles east of Ebenezer, which was near the Israelites camp once again. Now the ark is interesting because it represented the ruling presence of God, the ruling presence of God. But we see in tonight's study that they were relying on the object to save them. Let's remember the ark of the covenant was a wooden chest. It was overlaid with gold inside and out. One of the items that went into it were were the tablets of stone that God had given to Moses, gave him the testimony. And so it's called the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. And they were relying on this object. And so they superstitiously thought that if they were to have the Ark with them in battle, this second round, that it would ensure that God would fight on their behalf. And so they were lying on an object. They were superstitious. That's what it's turned out to be. And But the question I want to pose to all of us is, what object are we relying on? Because we may not think that we are, but some of us may be relying on a certain object to be some type of good luck charm. So what are we treating in that manner? What have we used to replace God and God's help? I wonder tonight if our Bibles are taken away or if the crosses we wear on our chains are taken away or if those wristbands with the scriptures are taken away, if our Christian shirts are taken away. Will that be the end of our fellowship with God? Will we trust in those items? Are we trusting in those items more than we trusting in God and his power? If those things are taken away, will that be the end of our hope? See, those objects or these relics, they can't save us. But of course, we know the scriptures. We know that God is able to save us. He is able to deliver us. He is able to help us. And so, yes, we need a relationship with this true and the living God. We don't need to waste time putting our relationship in things or in relics or things that we may see as some type of good, Lord, good luck charm in a superstitious way. And so in verse 4, it says, The people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of heavenly armies. And it says, who dwells between, or he sits enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now we heard a lot about Hophni and Phinehas, these priests, these evil priests, these sons of Eli, who was the high priest at that time. We've we've read much about them. And so as we just read verse 4, we come to understand that unfortunately they will be the ones who would be carrying the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh into the place of battle. And now these cherubim, because we did mention that, because it says that the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. See, these cherubim, by the way, and, and by the way, it's, it's a plural form of the word cherub. 
and there are powerful angelic creatures. For example, you may remember them in Genesis chapter 3. Because there they served as guards to the Garden of Eden after God had expelled man from the garden. And so why, once again, is this phrase dwell between the cherubim? Why is that significant? First of all, on top of the ark, remember I said it was a chest, a wooden chest overlaid with gold inside and out. Well, the lid, if you want to call it that, was the mercy seat. And this mercy seat was made of pure gold and it had a cherub on each end of the lid. And these two cherubim, they, they had their wings outstretched and they faced each other. And their faces also were looking down at the top of the lid, which is the mercy seat. And God spoke to them from this place. In fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. Now, remember, this is God speaking with Moses. Speaking of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It says, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are on the Ark of the Testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And so that's why when you read certain scriptures, it mentions God or the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. It is speaking of this instance here of how God would meet with Moses, how God would manifest his presence above the mercy seat. And so it was a picture of God speaking from his throne. But today we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. We, we don't need a visible or tangible mercy seat made of pure gold. We don't need that today in order to meet with God. Today we can meet with the Lord through his word. And of course, we can meet with the Lord in prayer. In fact, the Lord invites us to, to come to his throne of grace he invites us to come there and to obtain mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. And the question I have for you that I want to pose to you is, are you in need of grace? Are you going through something or is there something that God wants you to do where you know that you can't do it alone? You're going to need the grace of God to get you through it and to help you to do it. Well, you are invited by God himself to come to that throne of grace and obtain mercy and to, and to find that grace to help us in our time of need. As we continue in verse 5, it says, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook, it reverberated. And now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. In other words, we're in trouble. For, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. How terrible it will be for us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They don't understand that it wasn't a bunch of gods, that it was the God, the true and the living God. But they said, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. You see, God's reputation had preceded him. Now, if you might remember, just based on what they're saying, you might remember or recall the 10 plagues that God had brought upon the land of Egypt because Pharaoh would not let his people go from bondage. And 
We come to remember that 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn of humans and animals in Egypt. Because after that 10th plague, then Pharaoh let the children of Israel go. And of course, they were led by Moses and Aaron at that time. But God's reputation had preceded him and they knew about that. And even today, I pray that more people will come to know about the accomplishments and that they will come to know about the reputation of the God that we serve, of the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. I pray that God's reputation, his accomplishments will precede him as we share the, about the God we serve, as we share that we serve a God who can deliver them from bondage, but of course not physical bondage. And he can do that too, but we're talking spiritual bondage. We can share God's accomplishments with people and his reputation as a God who can, who can split seas like he split the Red Sea. And we can share him as the God who can cause a river. Remember the Jordan River to stop flowing so his people can walk over and cross into the promised land. Well, God can stop those rivers of issues in our lives and, and he can split the, the, the problems in our lives so that we'll walk through safely and make it to the other side. That's the kind of God we serve. Oh, and he has a great reputation because the same God we serve that I pray people will come to know and understand is the same God who made a way for people to escape from hell, from judgment. And that is eternal judgment. That is through a relationship through Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, the God we serve has a great reputation, a reputation of a God of love, a reputation of a God of justice, a reputation of a God who is good, a God who is merciful, and a God who is gracious to people who do not deserve his goodness and who do not deserve his blessings or his grace. Our God has a good reputation that precedes him. And may we see that as a blessing to be able to, to share that with other people. And I like what it says in Psalm chapter 40, verse, verse 5, or Psalm 40, verse 5. It says, many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts or plans toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. I cannot repeat them to you in order. If I will declare or if I will report and speak of your wonderful works, Lord, they are more than can be numbered. And we continue in verse 9 and 1 Samuel 4 and, he, and the Philistines are talking to each other, trying to pump each other up. And they said, be strong and conduct yourselves like men. I, I know the Ark of the Covenant is there. And they're happy that their God is going to be with them. But be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the Ark of the Covenant was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Oh, what a horrible day for the nation of Israel. See, God had used the Philistines, this Gentile nation, to carry out his judgment against Eli, his household, and of course, Israel. And God, we see, was keeping his word that he shared with Eli through that man of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. When he told God about the judgment that was coming upon him in his house, that they were going to be removed from the priesthood. So yes, we see here that their sin got them in trouble. And their sin would get us in trouble as well because sin has consequences. And then a man of Benjamin in verse 12, 
He ran from the battle line the same day and he came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And that indicated that he was mourning. And now when he came, there was Eli and he was sitting on a seat by the wayside or by the side of the road. And he was watching because Eli's heart trembled. It was anxious for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult or what is this commotion about? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the city gate. And Eli's neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. See, Eli expected his two sons to die. He didn't know when, but he was told that as a sign of all that has been shared with him by that man of God, that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, these priests, these evil priests, they're going to die on the same day. And so Eli expected that they would die on the same day. Of course, he didn't know when. You see, their death, it was just the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Eli's line of the priesthood would be destroyed. It was just the beginning. And since he saw that, he knew that with the man of God and even with Samuel had confirmed based on what the word of God said, he, he knew that whatever else was going to come. The, the rest of the judgment was on his way against his household. However, notice that Eli's great concern wasn't his sons. It wasn't the fact that Israel was defeated, but his great concern was about the Ark of the Covenant. And so what he was afraid of had come to pass, that something had happened to the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And so he was more grieved and shocked about that than hearing about his son's death. He knew his sons were evil. And he chastised them once, but he didn't do anything about it afterwards. And verse 18 lets us know about the contributing factors of Eli's death. Yes, he failed, but he was already old. But then he was heavy. His weight didn't help the situation. And, and I wonder if Eli's heaviness was due to eating too much of the people's sacrifice to the Lord. Because remember, his sons were taking advantage of the people's sacrifice that they were making to the Lord. And they were getting fat off the people's sacrifice. And it appears that maybe Eli was partaking of that. And so maybe God mentioned that in the scriptures that he was heavy to just to confirm that not only his sons, but, but maybe he too was getting fat off the people's sacrifice and not respecting the Lord's sacrifice. But now his daughter-in-law in verse 19, as we continue, Phineas's wife, it says that she was with child and it was almost time for her to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her, her father-in-law and her husband were dead, it says that she bowed herself and she gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have borne a son, but Phineas, his wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, did not answer 
nor did she regard it. She didn't pay attention to them. She couldn't care less that she had given birth to a son. But then she named the son, the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. So they died. Her husband and father-in-law died. Even when her brother-in-laws died, the Israelites were defeated. The ark of the covenant was captured. The glory has departed from Israel. Verse 22, for the ark of God has been captured. And so she died in childbirth. That news was so tough. It was so rough for her that she ended up giving birth to her son and died in childbirth. But there was something she did before she died. She named her son and she named him Ichabod. And Ichabod means no glory or it could mean where is the glory or where is glory. And so obviously it's speaking about the glory of God. And so his name will always be associated with something bad. And so can you imagine this this child growing up, this young man growing up, and his name is Ichabod. It means, again, no glory. And, And it's a reminder of that time that the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the ruling presence of God, represents the glory of God amongst the people, reminds them of the fact that it's been captured by the Philistines. It reminds them of this horrible moment in time for this nation. And so his name will always be associated with something bad. And I wonder tonight, what names are we calling our children? Oh, I'm not just talking about literal names. I'm just talking about literal names. And, but, but I'm just talking about names in In general, what are we calling them? What are we defining our children as by the adjectives we use to describe them, in other words? You see, they don't need to be defined all of their lives by their past mistakes. In other words, if the child used to be a thief, and he's changed because of the Lord's work in his or her life, then that shouldn't stick with them. That shouldn't be brought up again and again and again when God has forgiven them of that. Well, they need to know how God sees them, especially after they put their faith in Christ. They need to know that they don't have to be tied any longer to their sins of past generations. They no longer need to be identified with what they used to be, but what they are now in Christ Jesus. They, they need to understand that, hey, I, I am loved. Oh, I am called by God. I am chosen by God. They need to know these things that I am an heir and I'm a joint heir with Christ Jesus. That I'm a child of God, that, that I'm a citizen of heaven. They need to understand who they are In Christ Jesus. Oh, that I'm a vessel. I'm a container. For the word of God. Well, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's who I am now in in Christ Jesus. I'm no longer that thief that I used to be. I'm, I'm no longer that person who used foul language all that time. I'm no longer a murderer or a prostitute. Whatever the case was in the past. No, but for Ichabod, that name will stick with him. But for us as believers, we're so blessed. We're so blessed that many of us know who we are now in Christ, that we have, so to speak, have a new name in Christ. In other words, we have a new nature or a new identity in Christ. As it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I, and I didn't mean to bring this up in the notes, but this is what's going on today. Well, I've heard the term gay Christian. 
Why are you attributing the, what should be the old life with the new you? Oh, the old life and the new life, they can't exist at the same time. Either that's what your lifestyle is, that's what your identity is, or you are a Christian now, or you're a child of God now. It will be the same as saying, I'm a murderer Christian. I'm a thief Christian. I'm, I'm a kidnapper Christian. And so, no, like I said, I didn't have that in my notes to bring it up. So that term gay Christian or whatever it is, is, is false. It's a lie from the enemy. If you truly repented and put your faith in Christ, you, you drop that old moniker. That's no longer you. That's not your name anymore. You identify with Christ and you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I am no longer Ichabod associated with the terrible things that have happened in the past. I'm no longer associated with that bad things that, uh, the, the bad things I used to do in the past. That is no longer me. Oh, I'm a, I'm a believer now. I am brand new now. The, the way I think is brand new. The way I speak is brand new. The way I walk or live is brand new. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. And because I am in Christ Jesus, I am no longer condemned. So you can wipe off that name from my birth certificate because I'm not condemned. Don't associate that with me. Oh, I have freedom in Christ Jesus where the spirit of the Lord is. It says there is liberty, there is freedom. And so if you ask me what my name is, my name in Christ Jesus is freedom. My name is redeemed because Jesus has paid the price with his precious blood to set me free. So I love what that old song. I love that old song and those lyrics in that song. If anybody asks who I am. And I may be getting the lyrics all wrong, so don't count on me for songs, for music. Everybody will leave here. But anyway, the point is, I'm redeemed. <laughs> That's what I want to get to. Amen. Just fast forward through all that stuff I can't remember anyway. <laughs> and so God allowed the Philistines to defeat the Israelites. And his glory, his blessings and favor and protection was not with them. His glory had departed from them. But I do want to share this. When we talk about God's glory, his presence, we, I want to share, and many of you know this, your Bible scholars, that, that God is present throughout all creation. And the fancy term that we use, the theological term we use is omnipresent or omnipresent. He's present throughout all creation. But then there's a difference between him being omnipresent everywhere at the same time. There's a difference between that and him um, having his or us experiencing his manifest presence. So the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. And the manifest presence of God refers to the times when, when God is not just omnipresent, but he becomes directly involved in time and space. In other words, yes, we know that God is here right now, but not everybody senses his presence. But then when you begin to sense his presence and when you begin to see God move and change things, now you begin to see the manifest presence of God. Not that you're seeing God in all that he is, but you're seeing, you're seeing evidence that God is real. You're seeing evidence of the reality of God. And so that's the, the glory of God. And God works actively only where he wants to, according, in other words, to his will. And, and so when, when God works actively where he decides to work, what he's doing is revealing his presence. He's revealing that he is there. And we experience the glory of God. For example, when someone is healed, you, you may not be Looking at God face to face, 
face to face. But when you see that somebody has prayed or you're praying with them and they get healed, you're looking at the glory of God. In other words, you're, you're seeing evidence that God is present. And so the manifest presence of God versus his omnipresence. And that word glory literally means weight. It's the idea of significant scope or capacity. It's the fullest expression of the only God, as as one scholar shared. And the glory of God speaks of the beauty and his awesomeness or his amazing quality. The amazing quality of his being. It's what the glory of God speaks of. And the glory flows from his character. It flows from all that he is. And, and his glory consists of the revelation of God's nature. And so when you experience the glory of God, you, you are experiencing something that is inherent within him. And as one Bible teacher said, and I love this quote, he says, as light is to the sun, so just like light emanates from the sun, he says, glory is to God. In other words, glory emanates from God. Now, when the reality of God's existence is shown in or through someone or something, the revelation of, is God's glory. So when, when somebody is being used in a mighty way by God, when, when somebody receives the gifts of healing, for example, or there's some type of miracle, some kind of crazy accident that they're saved from, and there's no possible way, according to man, they should be alive. You're looking at an example of God's presence, an example that God has been there, the manifest presence or God's glory. And so we see proof that God has been working. Proof that God has been working. In other words, we see his glory. And due to Israel's unconfessed sins and their lack of repentance, there was broken fellowship between them and God. And because of that sin and which caused that broken fellowship between them and God, the glory or that manifest presence had departed and God's special favor and his blessings were gone as they were in battle with the Philistines. See, they were being judged and they were being chastised by the Lord. And so when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, it was a signal that something wasn't right. When that Ark of the Covenant was taken, it was a symbol that, that God's glory, that his manifest presence had moved on. Because he wasn't fighting on their behalf. They didn't see evidence of God working on their behalf. Why? Because of that broken fellowship with them. And many of us today, we're, we're used to parents and we're used to relatives and friends who not only exist in this world, right? They exist in this world. And we, we're used to that. We know they exist in this world. Speaking of parents, relatives, and friends, for example. But not only do we know that many of them exist in the world, but we have interacted with them personally as we have gotten into trouble or invited them to, you know, a little birthday party for the kids or get togethers. And they have come to spend time with us. And so, so to speak, we have experienced the manifest presence, in other words, of those parents and relatives and friends as they have stepped in. Not only do we know they exist in the world, but they stepped into our current circumstance. They stepped into our homes to celebrate our children's birthday parties or whatever the case may be. And now we are experiencing their presence. And we see evidence that they're here they're working. But then when you get to that point, when you invite that parent or 
relative or friend to help you with the same issues they used to help you with. When you invite them to the same get-togethers they used to come to. But all of a sudden, they stop coming. They stop interacting with you. Then you'll get the sense that something isn't right. Now, unfortunately, there's some local churches that should be sensing that something isn't right when it comes to experiencing God's presence. In other words, what I'm saying that for some churches, Ichabod or no glory could be applied because the manifest presence of God isn't there. In other words, yes, God is omnipresence everywhere at the same time, but they are not experiencing the work of God in their church. They're not experiencing his blessings in an intimate way, in other words. You see... In other words, God isn't working the way he wants to and can work in some local churches. Why? Because it is Ichabod for some local churches. And it's sad to say. Now, this is due to those local churches embracing sin and operating in the flesh. And their fellowship with the Lord is broken, causing the glory of God to not be present. Listen, I'm not talking about loss of salvation. I'm talking about broken fellowship. There's a difference. You can be still married to the same person, but not be on the same page. In other words, the fellowship is broken, but they're still husband. They're still wife. My mother is still alive. And praise God, I have a great relationship with my mother. But even if there was broken fellowship between my mom and I, she's still my mom. And so I'm not talking about loss of salvation for the true believer. We're talking about broken fellowship in some churches due to embracing sin and operating in the flesh. Now, now granted, not everybody in a local church is a true believer. And I believe Jesus taught on that in the parable of the, of the four different soils and the seeds. Only one of those soils produced fruit. The rest of them were believers, I believe, on the surface. And so I believe the scriptures teach that there's false converts. So I'm not saying that every person in a local church is a believer. So there's some people who are a part of what you would call the visible church. But then there are true believers who are a part of the true church, where they're truly baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Oh, we don't see that, but that happens in the spiritual realm. And so some of these churches are embracing sin and they're operating in the power of their flesh. And so it is Ichabod. There is no glory there. Oh, for these places that I'm describing, unfortunately, they exist today. Some local churches exist today like this. It's about what entertains people or it's about what makes people feel good. And and you'll notice it. Or they're making people, uh, they're making people, in other words, who are looking for that next emotional experience instead of making disciples. Let me say that again. Some churches are making people who are looking for the next emotional experience, but they're not making disciples as Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28. Oh, in some of these churches where Ichabod is declared, it has the appearance of being busy. Oh, everything looks good on the surface. Oh, they put this program on, that program on, but the work is not being done with a pure motive. Oh, like Jesus told one of the churches in the book of Revelation, he says, you've left your first love. I remember a time when you used to serve me with a heart full of love for me, but now you are just going through the motions and you're just punching the clock. I need you to repent and get back to the first works that you used to do. Get back to your first love. But there are also some individuals who could wear the Ichabod name tag as well. And the result of that is that they're not growing. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is no victories or there are no victories. And the prayers are ineffective and the ministry that God has given them is powerless 
because of Ichabod, because of them embracing sin and operating in the flesh. And again, that fellowship with the Lord is broken, causing the glory of God not to be revealed in and through their lives and in their ministries or through their ministries. Ichabod. Oh, check this out in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Now, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea. And, and you may have heard about this lukewarm church. Now, by the way, you know, these letters to the churches, they can be applied on various levels. They could be applied to the local churches that really existed at that time. They could be applied to the big church in the church age timeline. They could be applied to the big C church of today. They could be applied to the local churches and, of course, to individuals. And so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And if you didn't notice anything odd about this verse. I'm going to point it out to you. Notice that Jesus is standing outside the church. Ichabod. Why? Glorifying sin, being lukewarm, but he's knocking. Hey, if there's any individuals in this local church, if there's anybody in there who hears my voice and you'll open up the door of your heart, guess what? I'm going to come and have fellowship with you and you with me. You see, as believers, we should want to see evidence of his presence. We should, be, we, we should be people who want to experience his presence in our churches and in his life and in our lives. See, if there's evidence of God's presence, if there's evidence of God working in the church, we'll, we're going to be seeing people get saved. We're going to see Christians growing. We're going to see Christians being fed and Christians going out witnessing because healthy sheep will beget other healthy sheep. You may have heard that saying. You're going to be seeing prayers getting answered and the spiritual gifts being used appropriately. I have to add that decently and in order. And as individuals, if, if there's the presence of God, if, if, if we experience or are experiencing his presence in our lives, then yes, we get to enjoy his blessings and we're going to experience those victories. The prayers are going to be more effective or unhindered and the fruit of the spirit will be more evident. In other words, we're going to see proof that God is working, God's glory. And for the saved individuals who are being chastised, again, I'm not talking about loss of salvation. Again, I'm talking about broken fellowship. In other words, as there's, there's some believers who they, they're sitting there and they're like, man, I just can't sense God the way I used to. The prayers, they just, I, I don't, it's different. Something isn't right. But we can make it right. Just like Israel could have made it right in our lesson. And the local churches of today could make it right. How? As Terrence takes the stage, I believe he's singing the last song, right? How? How can we make it right when we sense something isn't right? That we're off. We're out of step with the Lord. Well, we can confess. We can repent. I mean, change one's mind about something. Turn from sin. Turn to God and we can obey. That's how we fix it on our end. And we put him back on the throne of our hearts. Now, I realize tonight there are some aspects of the lesson that will not apply to every single person because many of you are thriving. And you can, you can see the glory of God in your life because you can see the Lord is working in and through you. So we see the glory of God there in your life. And so it, there are some things that will not apply to every single person. But if anything, at the very least, Tonight's message should serve as a warning to all believers to not hinder the work of the Lord in our churches and in our lives by doing what? By operating in our flesh or by ignoring God or being tolerant of sin. We don't want to hinder the work of God. 
In fact, may the next generation and may the world see God's manifest presence. May they see God's glory or may they see that God is working for in and through the church and through our lives. And may they see that that's not just a thing of the past. May they see that, oh, God's glory and his working for in and through people was not just for the people of Israel in the Old Testament or the the church in the book of Acts. May they see that the manifest presence of God, that his glory, that evidence of him working in, through, and for us, may they see that that is for today, that God is still willing to work in, through, and for us. Oh, and he's still doing it. So praise God for that. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for all the work you're doing in, through, and for us. We thank you that you show evidence of your presence here and in many other local churches in the area, Lord. As we see growth, as we see Christians going out witnessing, as as we see the urgency for people to reach others for Christ in these days. Lord, we see proof of your presence. We, we see your glory in many of our families, especially in many of these youth and, and these teenagers, Lord. They're, they're on stage and they're singing songs for you, Lord. The youth are teaching, uh, they're teaching the word of God to other youth in the church. Little children are witnessing to other little children in school. Oh, Lord, we, we're, we're seeing you at work. We are seeing your glory. And, Lord, if there's any sin in our lives, we, we confess and repent, Lord. We want your work to go unhindered in and through us. And I just pray your blessings upon my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, those who are viewing, those who are in the building on this campus, praying that you have blessed their week, Lord, praying that you will move in a mighty way in their lives and in whatever situation they're going through, whatever problem that they're going through, Lord, you are the problem solver. You know, as that song says, Lord, we, you know, we may have to pray that line, Lord, give us faith, Lord. To trust what you say. Oh Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.